Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here or this is your first time, welcome. I'm so happy that you found me and I really hope you stay a while. If you've been here before, I can't express how much it means to me that I have everybody's love and support and I hope that you continue to come back and check out all my new episodes. If you haven't noticed, my background is way different, way worse. Uh, I apologize. I'm currently in the process of moving to New York after a three-year hiatus out side of it. I'm super excited to move, but everything is all over the place and my background is going to be missing a few things and it's going to look messy for a few weeks until I can get my sound room set up in New York. So thanks so much for bearing with me while I make this transition. I got the idea for today's mobster from when I went to the VA, actually. I went to get blood work taken and this guy was taking my blood and he was like, oh, I think you need to be on the radio because you just like have that kind of voice. And I was like, well, you know, if you're interested in the mafia, I make videos about them. And he was telling me about how he's from Philadelphia and he was telling me about the Scarfo family and how they're still active to this day in Philadelphia and how they're the only ones that are allowed to park their car in the middle of the street. So I love doing mafia members that are from New York, but there's an entire family in Philly that they just seem really interesting. So I wanted to check out this guy this week. So... Today we're going to be talking about Nicodemo Domenico Scarfo Sr., or Little Nicky Scarfo, who was born on March 8, 1929, in Brooklyn, New York. His parents, Philip and Catherine Scarfo, immigrated to America from Naples and Calabria. Both of those are in Italy. Catherine had a reputation as a really tough woman, and she had absolutely no qualms yelling and screaming at the media, at the police, anybody who pissed her off. You could still find footage today of her just yelling at people. She was definitely a force to be reckoned with. I couldn't find anything about his father. I'm not sure what he did, but they came to America looking for a better life for themselves. They were like a lot of Italians at the time. They were fleeing the extremely impoverished Italy. And in the days before TikTok, the whole world was told that the American dream can be achieved if you just can make it to America. So that's what most people that were fleeing impoverished countries did they tried to come to America. Most of the time though when they did finally make it to America they realized that they were going to be living the same poverty-stricken life that they had just fled from but now they're in a foreign country. There's no difference here with Philip and Catherine. They ran from Italy for the American dream. They get to America they're barely making ends meet and then they had a son Nicodemo and the year he was born the stock market crashed. In August of 1920 the Great Depression began. That's something that I actually haven't discussed here before, which is pretty surprising because almost every mafioso that I've covered was alive during this time. The Great Depression was a worldwide economic downturn that lasted over 10 years. If you're from America, more than likely you know what the Great Depression is. You've heard it, you were taught it in school, but a lot of people that weren't from America probably haven't heard about it. It originated in the United States and the severe repercussions were felt around the entire globe. The entire world experienced a huge increase in unemployment, deflation, and an even bigger decrease in output. While the entire world felt the Great Depression, this absolutely decimated the United States. The country hadn't seen this kind of poverty since the Civil War, which is a lot sadder when you look at it as a huge percentage of the population was people that were fleeing their impoverished countries and coming to America only to get hit with the Great Depression. It was sad. The Great Depression caused a huge decline in consumer demand because nobody had the money to buy anything. So you have all these people and they have no money to buy food or especially things that will keep them entertained, televisions, you know, nights out on the town. So when people don't have money, they don't have money to spend, and that causes a huge problem when consumer demand falls so drastically. It also caused financial panics, it caused misguided government politics, and these misguided politics caused the economic output to fall in the United States. And the gold standard, which linked almost every country in the world to a network, and it pretty much like fixed the currency exchange 
exchange rates. So the way that the American dollar is worth a tiny bit more than the Italian or a little bit less than the European euro, that is all just kind of put in place by the gold standard. So pretty much money is backed up. It used to be backed up by actual physical gold. And this played a huge role in transmitting the American downturn to other countries because other countries shouldn't be so severely impacted by an economic downturn in America. But because the currency exchange rate was so tied up with the physical gold, it just was a ripple effect and it had an effect on the entire world. When the Great Depression first started in the summer of 1929, Philip and Catherine moved to Philadelphia so that they could live with relatives of theirs. And it would just make it a little easier not having a mortgage or a rent payment because they weren't able to find work. While they were in Philadelphia with family, this is where Scarfo was first exposed to the Philadelphia mob. His two uncles were heavily involved. His two uncles were the Piccolo brothers, and they were pretty big names in the Philadelphia mafia. Scarfo fell in love with the life from a very young age. He saw his uncles being treated like royalty. Like, whenever they went out, they were literally treated like movie stars because of what a big deal they were in the Philadelphia mafia. I guess not growing up in New York was a good thing because most of the guys that we see that grew up in New York, they dropped out of school at a really young age. But Scarfo graduated from a Philadelphia high school, Benjamin Franklin High School, and he was even given the honorific the most talkative person in his class. Fully grown, Nicky Scarfo was around 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, so very short for a man, and he weighed about 140 pounds, so this was a little dude. That's where he got the nickname Little Nicky because he was just, he was little. But this is also another one of those instances where his nickname was given to him, but it was never actually used around him unless you wanted to get offed right then and there. He was known for having short man syndrome. He was ready to fight anybody for the slightest sign of disrespect. This makes sense, honestly. I can't tell you how many Nicks I know that are short little shits and out of their goddamn mind. They wouldn't think twice about if you look at them wrong, and they're like five nothing. I dated a kid, Nick, when I was like 10 years old, and he's Italian, and uh, he's like two feet tall, and he's out of his mind. And he's only one of the million I know, so it, it really does exist. When Scarfo first got out of high school, he made an attempt at boxing. It became pretty clear early on that he wasn't really going to make it anywhere in the boxing world. He tried. He, he did a few matches at different clubs around the city, but it became pretty clear early on that he really didn't have a chance of making it in boxing. He he gave it a go. He fought in matches all over the city, but taller boxers had a huge advantage on him because he was short. He had a very small reach. So it just, it wasn't going to work out for him. He also grew up within the mafia, so he knew what kind of opportunities existed there. He knew how much money he could make as a gangster, so he quit boxing pretty quickly after he started. In 1959, the boss of the Philadelphia family was Joseph Ida. He wanted to take out a guy that was also in the Philly mob, Angelo Bruno. When Ida went to New York to seek permission because you don't kill anybody in the mafia without getting permission from the New York commission first. So when he went to New York to seek the permission from the commission to execute Bruno, he didn't really know that Bruno had some serious network set up in New York already. So the mafia commission was like, uh, absolutely not. The commission promoted Bruno to be the boss of the Philly family that day. Bruno was nicknamed the Gentle Don. He didn't really like killings, beatings. The family was constantly wrapped up in legal troubles, and he didn't want that. He wanted a peaceful reign. Bruno told his family to keep a low profile, keep out of the newspapers, behave the way the gangsters are supposed to behave. He also told them to avoid any unnecessary violence. He believed that this was just another way to attract attention and go to jail for no good reason. When Scarfo was around 30, 35 years old, he was still pretty low level in the Mafia. He had a very violent and flashy reputation, but really didn't have anything in particular that set him apart from any of the other guys on a street level. Joseph Rugnetta, Bruno's consigliere, he started to really like Scarfo. His family was from the same part of Italy as Scarfo's family was from, and he liked the way that Scarfo carried himself. He really respected him. In 1962, he attempted to set up an arranged marriage between Scarfo and his daughter. Which is funny because I was talking on the last episode about how I think that these mafia families, they get married to each other the same way that kings and queens did just to bring
having bonds between the family. And it sounds crazy and everybody will deny it, but this is kind of hard proof that it really does happen. We know from looking at other mafia members what happens when somebody marries high up in the family. Typically, marrying someone, a daughter, a sister, of someone in a really high position in the family, it'll almost instantly catapult you from a lowly soldier that nobody even has ever heard of to somebody that's rising through the ranks in absolutely no time. Almost every single guy in the Philly Mafia would have jumped at the chance to marry the consigliere's daughter, literally without ever even looking at her, without meeting her, any single one of these guys would have married her because of what it meant for their career. They knew how much more money, respect, responsibilities, what a higher rank, what this would do for their career if they got married to the consigliere's daughter. But Scarfo is not one of those soldiers. Remember, he has little man syndrome. He has a problem with his pride, and he turns around to Ragnetta and tells Ragnetta that he had no interest in the proposal and that he wouldn't marry his ugly daughter. He literally said that to the consigliere of the family that his daughter was ugly. While marrying a higher-up's daughter will catapult you into stardom almost immediately within the mafia, the fastest way to put a big fat X in the middle of your forehead is to insult someone's daughter, no less the consigliere of the family. And Scarfo was about to learn that. When Scarfo told Rugnetta his daughter was ugly, Rugnetta was so offended that he went to Bruno and told Bruno that he wanted Scarfo killed immediately. Literally, the only thing that saved Scarfo's life was that his uncle, Nicky Buck Piccolo, was a capo in the family. Bruno said that he couldn't kill him because he didn't want to start a war within the family with the Piccolo brothers. The Piccolo brothers had their own little faction, there was a lot of people in it, and it would have started a war within the family, and he didn't want that, so he said no. So having uncles that were a big deal is literally the only reason that Scarfo was allowed to stay alive past this point. And who knows, maybe that's the reason that Scarfo felt confident enough to tell the consigliere of the friggin' Philly mob that you're in, that his daughter was ugly when he was just a street soldier. It has to be, because who else could be that stupid? I, I don't see it. So it had to be, hey, my family's a big deal, and I'm not going to go marry your ugly daughter because my family, they matter more than that. And that's not to say that he should have turned around and married her just because she was the consigliere's daughter. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's a million other ways that he could have approached that. Hey, I I really have a crush on another woman. Hey, I'm really not ready to be married. Literally a million other ways. The last thing that you want to do is say, no, your daughter's ugly. I would never marry her. Like, what? What are you trying to do, die? Like, <laughs> on May 25th, 1963, Scarfo and his friends went to a diner in South Philly. They sat down at the table and a longshoreman came over to the table and he's like, hey, that's my table. And he had just gotten up to say hello low to somebody, so he wants his table back. A huge brawl breaks out because, God forbid, somebody dare say a word that's not love to Scarfo. So Scarfo picks up a butter knife and stabs this man to death in the middle of the restaurant over a goddamn table. A table! He killed him because he was sitting at his table. It's just dumb. Scarfo made a lot of dumb decisions when he was a kid. Scarfo claimed in court that it was self-defense, and while he was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter and he was sent to jail, it was only for less than a year, so at least he didn't go 25 to life for murder. Even though it was no big deal and he could do a year in jail blindfolded, Bruno got pissed because Bruno, remember, had told them no unnecessary violence. So the fact that Scarfo had just killed somebody in a diner with a butter knife pissed Bruno off. Scarfo was flat out ignoring his orders. And he killed someone in broad daylight in the middle of a crowd. Everybody watched him do it. And it brought a lot of attention onto the Philly family, and Bruno didn't want that either. Everybody knew Scarfo was a hothead, that he had absolutely no regard for authority, and he was basically unteachable. It would have been a lot easier to just kill him, but again, he had his family members, and because Bruno was so against violence, they pretty much just 
threw him away. They sent him to Atlantic City, which at the time was a desolate town with no earning potential whatsoever. The entire town was just a big ghetto. It was boarded up. It was abandoned. There was abandoned hotels everywhere. He took a few jobs as a bartender. He had a job in a local bookshop, and he's just financially dying there. He's just withering away, getting nowhere. While he was there, he was living in a boarding house with his mother. In 1970, the New York State Commission investigated the mafia and literally called everybody who had ever even thought to have been involved in the mafia to testify at this commission hearing. Here again, we see the clear violation of the Constitution, and almost everyone goes to jail for contempt of court when they plead the fifth. I really would love to know how these lawyers go about jailing these mafiosos who literally just won't testify. That's supposed to be a constitutional right. That's what the Fifth Amendment is. Scarfo is in jail with Bruno, and now he tries brown-nosing him because... I guess he learned his lesson. He's been financially dying in Atlantic City, and Bruno, at this point, is just already done with him. He got absolutely nowhere. When he left prison 32 months later, supposedly he left Scarfo with some paper clips, and it was a way to insult him. I don't know. It was something like, you know, you're worth less than these paper clips. I, I don't know. But it was an insult. I don't really care about you. And Bruno made it very clear that he didn't belong in the mafia, and he couldn't kill him because of his family, but that didn't mean he wasn't going to be a dick to him. Edwin Helfant was a municipal judge and a real estate attorney for organized crime figures, and he was also a judge in New Jersey. He and his wife, Marcy Helfant, had several sons, and they lived a normal life in a New Jersey suburb of Somers Point. He was a friend of Herman Stumpy Orman, who was a racketeer and business owner in New Jersey. He had an office on Atlantic Avenue in Atlantic City, and he shared that office with Orman. He was fighting a charge of obstruction of justice in a case that he had accepted $700 to fix an assault and battery case in 1968. The trial was delayed numerous times, so this is still going on well into the 70s. He had a nickname of the Fining Squire because he had a habit of fining kids who went to the Jersey Shore to party and had used fake IDs, and he was pretty well known for that. In 1972, Nicholas Virgilio was indicted on a murder charge of a New Jersey bricklayer. Scarfo knew that Virgilio was screwed, the state had all the evidence that they needed to put Virgilio away. They had all the evidence that he had committed the crime, and they had him dead to rights. Scarfo reached out to Helfant, who he knew through shared criminal friends. If you're a criminal, you usually know other criminals. So he knew him, and he hit up Helfant, and he was like, Hey, dude, what's up? Long time no speak. So, look, I have $12,500 here, and it's all yours if you make sure that when Virgilio is found guilty. Not if, when. When Virgilio is found guilty, he gets a light sentence. So Helfant, as someone who has worked with the Mafia and other criminal organizations many a times, is like, oh, $12,500? Say less. So he takes the money, and he's supposed to pass $10,000 of it up to the superior court judge to ensure that a light sentence is given when he's found guilty. So as they expected, Virgilio gets found guilty, and he's like, I bet, no biggie, this judge has been paid off, I know I'm skating here. When he went to court, his jaw dropped when he got hit with a 12 to 15 year sentence. Which, if you ask me, is super light for a murder charge. I don't know why he was so pissed, but he was mad. But at the end of the day, Helfant took the $12,500 and he kept it, and he never handed it to the judge that it was supposed to go to. So Virgilio and Scarfo are pissed. This man just spit in their faces, he didn't help them whatsoever, and now Virgilio is doing a 12-year bid. Virgilio didn't end up spending 12 years in prison, he was paroled six years later. In July of 1977, Helfant is still chilling at bars in New Jersey. This man is a set of... While he's chilling at a bar in New Jersey, Jersey, a fight breaks out between Phil Leonetti, who's Scarfo's nephew, and Giuseppe Pepe Leva. Helfont got in the middle of it, and he broke the fight up. A week later, Leva's body was found in Egg Harbor Township in New Jersey. Leonetti was charged with the murder, but a witness that said that they saw what happened had recanted the story, and the charges were dropped. So Scarfo goes to Helfont, and he's like, uh, hey dude, what's up? About that 12-5 that, uh, my boy just finished up doing a six-year 
bid, you're going to go ahead and pay him that now. So it's been six years, Helfand still hasn't done jail time, and he's already upside down in legal debt from this indictment that he's been fighting. He doesn't have the money to pay back Scarfo. On February 15th, 1978, Virgilio entered the Flamingo Motel in Atlantic City, where Helfand was having dinner with his wife in the cocktail lounge. Virgilio was wearing a ski mask, and he shot Helfand to death in front of his wife with five shots to the head. He didn't even switch it up. None in the chest, none in the neck, all in the head. This man was pissed. Scarfo was out of jail for the contempt of court case in 1973, and he started running around with Nick Caramondi, a crook from New Jersey. Caramondi wasn't connected. He didn't grow up with any family in the mafia, but they did robberies and pulled schemes and just did small jobs here and there to make money wherever they could. Eventually, Caramondi did get involved in the mafia, but he only got involved in the mafia because he was running around with Scarfo. In 1976, gambling was legal legalized in Atlantic City as a tool for urban redevelopment for the city after a popular vote by the New Jersey citizens. In the blink of an eye, this desolate, abandoned town turned into a booming city filled with lit-up casinos. It changed overnight as soon as that bill passed. In 1977, the New Jersey Casino Control Act was signed, which invested a lot of government funds and lifted a lot of restrictions so that they could rehabilitate and redevelop the existing tourist convention facilities in Atlantic City. Pretty much what this act did was it encouraged a lot of new construction. They did everything that they could to bring back the tourists and the entertainment and the cultural centers and all of the revenues of Income that there used to be before the everything went to hell with this desolate town. The governor of New Jersey, Brendan Byrne, literally went on the news and called out the mafia. He was telling them, keep your filthy hands out of Atlantic City. Brendan Byrne was elected as governor of New Jersey in 1973 as a Democrat. He was known as the man that the mob couldn't buy. He got his nickname from Simone Sam the Plumber de Cavacante after he prosecuted him in the 60s. De Cavacante called him a boy scout, saying that he couldn't be bought or gotten to in a private conversation with friends. He had no idea that at the time, FBI had wiretapped the room that he was in. And Byrne took this recording and he used it as his campaign platform. His slogan was, one honest man can make a difference. During the 1967 Newark riots, almost 1,500 people were arrested under Byrne's governorship. He walked the city's streets with a shotgun. Both as a prosecutor and as governor, he went after dishonest construction contractors and organized crime figures. He uncovered scandals. He oversaw the legalization of gambling in Atlantic City. And this is all to say that when I heard that gambling had become legal in Atlantic City, while Scarfo was residing there, in my head, I was like, okay, well, Scarfo must have had a hand in making that legal. And in that case, that means that Scarfo had a huge hand in bringing Atlantic City back to life. But I was definitely wrong. He had absolutely nothing to do with the legalization. He just piggybacked and just so happened to get lucky riding the coattails of the honest politician that was making gambling legal in New Jersey. Scarfo saw the growth that had taken place in Atlantic City, and he knew that there was so much more growth yet to come. He started a construction company with his nephew, Phil Leonetti, called Scarf Inc. The construction company forced every company that was doing construction in Atlantic City to hire them, whether they wanted to or not. The first six casinos built in Atlantic City had the cement laid by Scarf Inc. With the boom in gambling and construction, you also see a boom in other industries as well. There was a union for restaurant and hotel employees and bartenders, and Scarfo built a relationship with them where he ended up running the union. He would get about $40,000 to $50,000 a month from them, and he could put the entire city's employees on strike within like a moment. One phone call, everybody's on strike. And he gained a whole lot of power providing protection to this union and their leaders. Plans were made for developers to spend over a billion dollars on construction over the next 10 years on the Atlantic City boardwalk. Scarfo was arguably the most important man in New Jersey at this time. Scarf Inc. was doing massive sales, and he was 
finally seeing a real profit from being in the mafia. Vincent Falcone was another contractor that was doing business on the Atlantic City boardwalk. He trash-talked Scarfo every time he got the chance. Like, every time. Every time somebody would listen or he talked about him, he just trash-talked him and his company, Scarfink. He said that Scarfink's work was shoddy and it didn't hold up well. He legit won business by telling horror stories of companies that had worked with Scarfink in the past. He would talk about how Scarfo and Leonetti should be banned from the business and not allowed to do any work in construction or on the boardwalk or even be there at all. Of course, Falcone has absolutely no idea who he's dealing with. He didn't know these guys were in the mafia, he just thought that they were guys that were in construction. Of course, we know what's coming. Scarfo, Leonetti, and their friend Larry Merlino got together with a plumbing associate, Joseph Salerno, who's just a normal guy. He's just a normal plumber from down the street. They get together and they kill Vincent Falcone with a bullet to the back of the head on December 16th, 1979. Apparently, after they killed him, Scarfo looked at Falcone's body and said, I love this. I absolutely love this. Salerno wasn't a mob associate. This poor guy is just a plumber. He's just doing work like a regular blue-collar guy. Scarfo told him to tie up the body, and he did, but I guess when he got home, he sat back and was thinking to himself, like, oh my god, I just watched this guy kill someone, and he's gonna kill me next, because I literally witnessed it. He's gonna think I'm gonna talk, and, you know, his brain just got away with him. All the shit that an ordinary person, just, you know, Joe Schmo, that's a plumber down the street, is gonna think after they witness a mafia killing. Salerno called the cops, and and a week later, the three were arrested, and Scarfo was immediately out on bond. Tensions within the Philly family started to rise because Bruno wasn't defending his territory. With the boom in the Atlantic City economy, the New York Mafia guys start moving in, and they're doing illegal activities, and they're taking a piece of the pie there. And Bruno is just kind of looking the other way. He doesn't really care. This inaction, it appears to everybody within the family as a sign of weakness, and it seems like he's not protecting them, and he's not protecting their interests. The members of the Philly family were pretty convinced that Bruno just wasn't ready for this. He had been leading the family for a really long time now, but with Atlantic City becoming the East Coast's new Las Vegas, it was a whole new ball game. It put the Philly family in league with, like, the New York families as far as earnings went. And they thought that Bruno did well when it was like moderate earnings, but now that it was like huge money and huge opportunity had presented itself, he was letting anyone who wanted a piece of the pie to take it, and they thought he really just didn't know how to run a serious family. Bruno had a new consigliere, Anthony Bananas Caponegro. Caponegro got his nickname Bananas because his father was a wealthy banana merchant who owned and managed a stand in the Italian market. Now, the reason that I googled that was because I was like, why would you be called Bananas in the same mafia as Joseph Bonanno, who was nicknamed Joey Bananas? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Why would you want that as your nickname? But it's because his father was a banana merchant. He took the position of consigliere when Joseph Joe the Boss Rignetta died in 1977. He died of natural causes. He wasn't killed or anything. Tensions within the family started to rise because Bruno wasn't defending his territory. Other people were getting rich under his territory, and his people wanted to be the only ones benefiting from it. With the boom in the Atlantic City economy, the New York guys start moving in. They're doing illegal activities. They're just taking as much of this new money that's coming in as possible. On March 21st, 1980, Capo Negro went out to dinner with Anthony Bruno. Raymond Martirano, a lieutenant in the Bruno family, brought him home. He was his driver. And when they got to Bruno's house, Martirano rolled down the windows because Bruno had lit a cigarette. Supposedly because Bruno had lit a cigarette. A mess assailant came up to the car and shot Bruno in the back of the head. Pictures of the scene are absolutely freaking gruesome. The media was there in time to get pictures and video footage of Bruno dead in the passenger seat of this car with his mouth wide open and pieces of his skull 
all over the dashboard. It was, it was gnarly. This is all fine, well, and good and everything, but the killers made one huge mistake. They did not get permission to carry out this hit from the New York Commission. Capo Negro really didn't make it a secret that he was the one that killed Bruno. Everyone knew it was him, and he wasn't really trying that hard to hide it. Shortly after this, Capo Negro's body was found with evidence that it had been beaten with hammers, hatchets, pipes, and then just for good measure, they shot him 13 times. I don't know why 13 times. Maybe because it's an unlucky number. Maybe because it's an entire clip plus one in the chamber, just like emptied the gun into him. I don't know. I don't know what that 13 was. I didn't really look into it. If you know why, tell me. Capo Negro's body was discovered with a $20 bill stuffed into his mouth and uh, up his you know where. This is the same kind of thing as like when we see a rat will get found with their body with a rat in their mouth. Um, it's just sending a message that he got greedy and that's why he died. Bruno's underboss, Philip Testa, or the chicken man as he was known, got promoted to the boss of the family. Testa was Scarfo's mentor. They were like really, really tight and I guess Scarfo had learned his lesson about insulting one of the top three guys because, you know, he had gotten banished to the wasteland that was Atlantic City the last time he started problems with one of the top three guys so he learned his lesson and as Testa was the underboss they became boys and he was Scarfo's mentor. When Testa became boss he made Scarfo his consigliere. This is really significant because Scarfo was just a soldier. He didn't really rise through the ranks. He had never been a capo. He had never been a lieutenant. He had never been nothing. Nothing. He was just a street soldier. And all of a sudden, one day, he's consigliere. Scarfo, Merlino, and Leonetti went on trial for the murder of Vincent Falcone in October of 1980. Remember, Vincent Falcone was that contractor that wouldn't stop talking smack about Scarfo and Leonetti all over the place. So now, in October of 1980, they finally go on trial for this murder. Even though Joseph Salerno testified against them and recounted every detail of the murder, Scarfo was found not guilty. He pulled this off after a police officer and a bar owner vouched that the three of them were actually at a Hamilton bar, the silly gator, at the time of the murder. Scarfo was interviewed after receiving the not guilty verdict. There's still tape of it, and you can hear him saying, thank God for the American jury system. An honest jury. Meanwhile, he really did kill that man. Joseph Salerno Sr. and his wife Juliette Salerno sued the Philadelphia newspaper on April 20th, 1988 for defamation, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and negligent infliction of emotional distress. The Salernos lost their lawsuit after the courts found that there was no defamation because his son did testify against the mafia. On August 10th, 1982, Joseph Salerno Sr. was shot in the neck in a hotel in New Jersey. Now, obviously, this is related to the fact that his son had testified against Scarfo. The Philadelphia newspapers printed titles such as Canary's Dad Shot, Son Testified Against Mafia Figure Scarfo, and Mob Takes Revenge, Witnesses Father Shot. The Salernos lost their lawsuit because the courts found there was no defamation because his son did testify against the Mafia. Joseph Salerno Jr. went into witness protection. After testifying against the mobsters, telling the jury that Salerno had killed Falcone, then that he told them, I love this, I absolutely love this, he told them that Scarfo had once told him that he'd like to take a guy and cut his guts out and fry them in a pan, and that when Falcone had been shot, his body twisted around to see who had hurt him, and that the expression on his face was helpless when he saw that it was Leonetti. After doing all that, he knew that if anybody within the Philadelphia family ever found him, he would immediately be killed. So he went into Witsec, and he spent the next 10 years moving 40 times between Kansas and California. He lived under aliases, he had a $200,000 price tag on his head, and even the Witsec federal protection agency, the officers, they treated him like he was a criminal. He says that he was treated really bad by authorities that were assigned to protect him. He says that they treated him like he was a criminal that snitched to get out of a jail sentence, and he believes that since he didn't snitch to get out of a jail sentence, and because he snitched for the right reason not to get himself out of trouble, he should not have been treated poorly. So he 
talks about that. He wrote a book about it. It was like a whole thing. This point in time is a huge turning point for both Scarfo and the Philadelphia family. Three of their men had just been found not guilty of a murder that they had clearly committed, even though there was first-person testimony proving that they did do it. Atlantic City was busier than ever, and the entire family was seeing profits from that area. Testa brought in a new leadership style, having absolutely no issue whatsoever with violence, unlike Bruno, who had... he would kick somebody out and exile them for showing any kind of violence, Testa was not like this. Testa was down. Scarfo had a reputation as somebody who will literally kill someone in broad daylight and walk away from it scot-free. He's now consigliere, and he has a stranglehold on all the construction business going on on the boardwalk. He had been making even more money since he killed his biggest competitor, and now that he had been welcomed back into Philadelphia, now that Bruno was gone. Scarfo controlled Local 54, a bartender's union, the one that has the restaurant and hotel workers in it, where he made about $300,000 a year just for running that union. That's pretty bomb money, if you ask me. And that was in 1980. That would be a little over a million dollars a year in today's money. John McCullough was the leader of the Philadelphia Roofers Union, he also just so happened to not be all the way above board. He was in the K&A gang, the Philadelphia Irish Mafia gang, whatever. This man had a serious amount of people behind him. He had a plan to split Local 54 down the middle and take control of one of the halves of the union. Scarfo brought this up to the family, and he was told that they would handle it. But McCullough continued with his plans and rallying people in the union to support this split down the middle. Now, Scarfo runs 100% of it. If it goes down the middle, McCullough will have 50 and Scarfo will have 50, but Scarfo has 100 now. He doesn't want to give up 50, so he's pissed. McCullough was told to stop trying to split the union in half, but, you know, he's in the Irish Mafia. He has a union of his own. He's not deterred by threats from the Mafia. After this all goes down, Testa is, again, Testa is, you know, he's down. He's, he's about that life. So Testa gives Scarfo permission to take McCullough out. The day after Christmas in 1980, a man disguised as a delivery driver brought some packages to the McCullough house. As McCullough and his wife were discussing how much he should tip the driver, the man shot McCullough in his house in front of his wife six times. These Philly dudes do not play. Like, that's not how New York guys operate. If you, you listen to any New York guy talk and they'll say like if a guy has a hit out on him and you see him and he's out with his wife or his kids or any of that they just won't move forward they won't do it they'll wait until the guy's by himself they don't they don't play this game of like hey wife i'm gonna kill your husband right in front of you it's it's a whole different ball game out there while scarfo was testis consigliere peter casella was his underboss casella was the underboss to angelo bruno and when Testa was appointed as the boss of the family, Casella remained the underboss, and he was pissed. Because when the boss of the family dies, what's supposed to happen? The underboss becomes the boss. But in this case, Testa became the boss. Casella wanted to be boss, so now he's mad. So now he's hoping that he's next in line to become boss of the family if another boss is killed. On March 14, 1981, Philip Testa came home from a night out. When he stepped onto his front porch to enter his house, he was killed by a nail bomb that had been planted under the porch of his house. The bomb maker was across the street with an ignition that he ignited as soon as he saw Testa take a step onto his front porch. The bomb had a stick of dynamite on it, and it propelled the nails even further so that even if he didn't die from the nails, the blast would have gotten him. Testa was blown into his house, and he was left for dead in his living room. Footage of the house shows the entire front end of the co-op was just completely decimated. It was gone. This situation is the same way that Bruno died, but this is different for a few reasons. Bruno had had a lot of really strong ties in New York. They were really upset when Bruno was killed, especially when he was killed without their permission, and they made an example out of his killer. With this one, though, they didn't kill Casella. It looks like it's the same type of situation as Bonanno. Casella was very old school. He had a hand in creating the Philadelphia family. He'd been in the mafia a really long time, and Testa hadn't really been the boss for that long, and New York really didn't care too much when he died. They didn't kill him him 
But they did the same thing as they did to Bonanno. They kind of like sent him off to Florida in exile. They told him, hey, if you ever get involved in anything to do with the mafia again, we will kill you ourselves. And Casella died in Florida in 1984 of natural causes while living with his daughter. Scarfo did this different than the rest of the bosses of the family had ever done. Even after he was appointed as the boss of the family, he continued living in Atlantic City away from the Philadelphia family. This had a pretty big impact on the outlook of people within the family on Scarfo. Scarfo was viewed as an outsider by the rest of the family. He had been operating in Atlantic City for almost 20 years, and he wasn't running the streets of Philadelphia like the rest of the family had been. They didn't know him, they didn't trust him, and they looked at him as like an interloper. And it didn't make it any better that he stayed in Atlantic City after he became boss and didn't get to know the family. Chucky Merlino, a relative of Larry Merlino, was named as his underboss. He promoted Leonetti to capo, and Caramondi was given his own crew, so now he's full-blown mafia. He's not just some low-level car robber like he used to be with Scarfo on the streets of Atlantic City. Now he has his own crew. He's full-blown mafia now. Because in order to be given a crew, you have to be a captain. And in order to be a captain, what do you have to be? You have to be a made member. So Caramondi had since been made, and now he, he's running shit. Under Scarfo's leadership, any and all illegal dealings in Atlantic City started getting taxed, which means, you know, small-time car robbers on the streets of Atlantic City were paying a tax, and any New York guys that were coming to Atlantic City and making money in Atlantic City were also getting taxed. And that was one of the number one problems that the family had with Bruno, was that he wasn't protecting the interests of the family. So when he put that tax in place, it either made the family money from people operating operating on their streets, or it deterred them from operating there in the first place because it's just going to cost them money to do it, so there's no point anymore. So I'm sure that made the family happy, you know, they don't they don't really know this guy, but like, okay, cool, that's awesome, he's protecting us now. Bruno never did, Scarfo is, great. But this tax led to a huge spike in assault and murder rates in the area, made the place not so safe. People that refused to pay the tax would either be beaten or killed, and obviously that started getting noticed by the authorities. People that were getting beaten up, they knew better than to rat on who did it. Like, everybody knew who Scarfo was and what a brutal mother effer he was. Like, you don't mess with him. So people got beat up and then they shut up. They would tell authorities that they fell, that they hit a door, you know, fell, tripped, hit my eye on a doorknob. Uh, they, they, they would say they got ran over by a truck, anything but ratting out Scarfo. Because you can either lie and stay alive or tell the truth and end up dead. What are you going to do? I'm going to shut up. I probably would have paid the tax in the first place, but you know, whatever. That's just, that's just me. Okay. I'm going to tell you something that should be taught in Gangster 101, but clearly it is not. Okay. Are you ready? You listening? Promise? If you flaunt your illegally gained money in front of the police, they will make sure to take it away from you. The biggest mistake that I see every single one of these mafia guys make is just they're so goddamn arrogant. One example of that's Al Capone. He dressed flashy, he had thousand dollar suits on, he gave interviews to the media, he flaunted his money. He did everything he could to show everybody what a big deal he was. He made sure that everybody knew that he was the biggest guy in the game with illegal alcohol and illegal weapons. And he knew he wouldn't get caught because he's just so scary. He's Al Capone. Well, look what happened. He was right. Cops couldn't catch him on his level. So what they do? They brought him up to their level and they caught him on tax evasion. They will always find a way to take you down. Always. You may think you're the biggest and you're the baddest and that you could take on the U.S. government, but I promise you, honey, you against all those men wasting their entire life sitting in a Congress room, I promise you you're not going to win. I promise. Nobody ever does. If they can't take you down for something that you did do, they'll take you down for something that you didn't. That's why in so many of these cases, you'll hear like, oh, it's ironic. They got him in jail for the one crime that he didn't actually commit. They don't care. It's the point. They don't care how they get you there. They just care that they put you in jail and they will get it done. They will get you there. The point of all that... <laughs> 
is that Scarfo is a very good example of this. He always had on fancy clothes, tailored suits, he wore expensive jewelry, he attended lavish parties, he gave interviews to the media, he made sure he was treated like a celebrity. He made sure everybody knew what a big deal Nicky Scarfo was. Michael Matthews was a small-time politician in Atlantic City. He decided that he wanted to be mayor, but he knew he had absolutely no shot of making this happen. He hadn't done anything in politics, he hadn't gained any respect, nobody knew who he was anymore, and most importantly, he had no money. Instead of paying his dues and spending the time it usually takes to, like, you know, build a career, accomplish things that you can run a platform on, no. He decided it would be way faster to just skirt that whole process and go to the Mafia and ask them for money. He promised them that if he was elected, he'd pretty much hand over the keys to the city. He said when, not if, when he was elected, the Mafia would have almost unfettered control of zoning and planning in the city on a legal level. And it worked. Michael Matthews was elected as the next mayor of Atlantic City. To be 100% honest, it's a complete toss-up between who could be sitting here telling you this story. It could just as easily be Bailey Sarian or any of those girls that do like those crime shows about serial killers. Or it could be me. Scarfo was an absolute psychopath. If he didn't have ties with the Mafia, he would be remembered more like Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. Like, he was gonna kill people either way. It just so happens that he got involved in the Mafia, and he used that for what other people would perceive as, like, a beneficial way. But if he wasn't in the Mafia, he'd be Dahmer. Like, this, this dude was insane. He was known for his disloyalty. He was known for his ability to switch up, like, you know, go from 1 to 100 in, like, 0.2 seconds. And nobody trusted that their business or their personal dealings with him were ever really going to go well for them. They all knew that they could make money or they just as easily could end up dead on the side of the road. In 1981, things started to come apart for Scarfo. At 52 years old, his apartment was raided and police found and confiscated a Derringer gun. A Derringer is a 22 caliber small handgun, very old school looking, probably just like, you know, regular tiny at the time. But now you look at it, you're like, oh, that's old school. That's, that's antique. 1981's not that long ago. Like I was born not that long after 1981. So I don't know why I'm like calling it antique, but I don't know. It's old. It's, it's, it's old. It's an old gun. It looks like an old gun. Okay. It's not like, you know, the sixties or the seventies, the but it's, it's an old looking gun. Okay. Maybe it was antique then. I don't know. Anyways, it's, it's tiny. It's not like some huge gun. It will literally fit in the palm of your hand. Put it this way. When the cops found it, they found it inside an eyeglass case and the eyeglasses were also still in that eyeglass case. So it's a tiny, tiny little gun. But it doesn't matter how big it is. The cops found the gun in the apartment and he was charged with possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Because remember, he had done jail time before with Bruno, and he also had been found guilty of involuntary manslaughter when he stabbed the dude with a butter knife. He fought this charge for over a year, but at the end of the day, he was found guilty. Scarfo fought these charges by claiming that the gun belonged to his wife, Dominica Scarfo. I didn't really tell you anything about Dominica Scarfo or their relationship because honestly, there's nothing out there. Like, I don't know anything about this woman. I just know that, like, she existed and she was his wife. And that she was a down bitch because she said the same thing. She's like, oh, that's my gun. Yeah, you found that in his top drawer? Yeah, like, mixed up in his socks in his eyeglass case? No, that's mine. But we know that, like, you know, Italian girls back then, way more down than, like, any female you will ever find nowadays. He was still found guilty, though, and he was brought to Latuna Federal Correction Institute in Anthony, Texas, to serve a two-year sentence. Even though he was all the way in Texas and he was in prison, he still maintained his status as the boss of the family and continued running shit. But whenever the boss of the family is in jail, there has to be somebody on the streets running shit. Scarfo put together a panel of five of his most trusted men and they ran shit on the street level while he was away. One of those five men was Salvatore Testa. Salvatore is the son of Philip Testa, the dude that was boss for like five seconds before getting blown up by nails. Testa was a young rising star in the Feli Mafia. He had recently made captain, and this position of running the family while Scarfo was locked up 
definitely helped elevate his position. And he started to become more well-known to both people in the family and the public as well. He was even one of the men that went to Latuna to pick Scarfo up when he got out of jail. And he got out of jail on good behavior, so he got out early, and he was released in August. When Scarfo was in jail in 1982, the Riccobini Wars broke out when a group of criminals, the Riccobini brothers, refused to pay tribute to the Philadelphia Mafia, even though they were operating illegal activities in the Philadelphia area. Angelo Bruno had been boss for 21 years, and he kind of gave the Riccobini crew a pass. He was like, eh, whatever, just let them do their thing. It's fine. They're not hurting anybody, okay? Just leave them alone. Why do you gotta be so violent? Why are you always trying to kill people? But Bruno died, now Scarfo's boss, and he ain't playing that shit. But remember, Scarfo's still in jail, so his crew goes out hunting for these men. And if they caught any of them, they would immediately execute them. The war started after the crew tried, unsuccessfully, to kill Larry the Hunchback Riccobini. They had tried twice. They had failed. Twice. After the second failed attempt, it was war, and the Riccobinis were hunting the Scarfos right back. Frank Monty, Scarfos consigliere, was killed as a result of this war on May 13th, 1982. Scarfos men retaliated by killing several men in the faction that night. This war went back and forth for like two years, until the entire Riccobini crew was either dead, locked up, or fled the city and just I'm gone. I'm not playing this anymore. I'm going to be next. I don't want to be next. I'm outie. So they left and then it ended. It was like a game of Monopoly. You know, you never see these war ends because some, like an entire crew is actually wiped out. That's not what happens. There's some kind of like peace accord drawn or something like, no, these guys were not stopping until it was the end. They ran the last one out of jail or killed them or whatever. And that was how it ended. Like these guys don't play, man. These Philly guys. Now, Salvatore Testa is running the crew that is going after the Riccobinis. And he got shot at, like, a whole bunch of times. And he almost lost his arm over it. Like, legit, almost lost his arm. You can still see pictures of him, like, walking around in a sling, but, like, his arm almost had to be amputated. Shortly after Scarfo got out of jail, there was an expose that was done, and it talked about the link between the Philadelphia Mafia and Michael Matthews, the mayor of Atlantic City that the family had gotten elected. This was absolutely catastrophic for both Matthews and Scarfo. A huge portion of the incoming money to the Mafia was through construction, and a lot of it was done with the stranglehold that they had on the Zoning and Planning Committee in Atlantic City. They were able to ensure little to no roadblocks were put in place by the government for any of the building that they were doing, and even though I don't see any mention of it, I'm assuming that they made life a lot more difficult for companies that were either competitors or companies that were using competitors. I'm, I'm assuming that they probably put some roadblocks up and made, you know, oops, that's illegal. You're not allowed to do that. Oh, now you want to hire my company? Okay, it's legal now. Anyway, now the jig's up um, because this newspaper article comes out and everybody in the government is aware of this little scheme between Matthews and Scarfo. And now there's no more benefits either. Matthews would not be getting mafia protection or their money. And Scarfo would not be getting his ideas and wishes pushed through the government anymore. After this expose, Matthews was indicted on federal extortion charges. Authorities claimed that he tried to extort $668,000 from two businesses that the FBI had set up to bait him. And he was also charged with taking $14,000 as a bribe from an undercover FBI posing as a representative of the companies. Frank Lentino was also indicted on charges with Matthews. Lentino was the organizer for Local 54. He was like the official head, even though Scarpa was the actual head. And remember, that's the hotel and restaurant bartenders union that Scarfo was controlling. Voters recalled Matthews' mayoral election on March 13th, 1984, and he was indicted on March 27th, 1984. So like days later. Matthews pled guilty to one count of extortion on November 27th, 1984. He admitted that he accepted a $10,000 bribe from an FBI agent. Since he pled guilty to this charge, the FBI dropped the charges that they had brought against him for further extortion, bribery, conspiracy, and in 1985, he was given a 15-year prison sentence. He got out on parole in June of 1990. 
Franklin Tino pled guilty to one count of conspiracy and got a 10-year prison sentence. Lentino passed away on September 24th, 2000, at the age of 89 years old. A month after that article was published, another article came out. Now, because the newspapers had broken this story and there's an established link between the city's mayor and the city's mafia, all eyes are on both. The newspaper is just slamming them left and right, boom, 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 over and over and over again. This time, the article was written about Salvatore Testa and his quick rise to power, the fact that he was on the brink of controlling the Philadelphia Mafia, and they pretty much just touted him overall as like the next big thing in the Pennsylvania Mafia. Scarfo, by this time, is like this paranoid and volatile man that will just turn on anybody at like the flip of a switch. He came to be known as disloyal because he was just that. He had no qualms killing someone who had like been his best friend last week. And they didn't even like have to do anything. If they showed the slightest bit of a sign that they may pose a threat or like even like annoy him, he would just kill them. This man just killed so many people. Even though Testa was Scarfo's protege, serious issues became really evident really quickly to everybody on the outside looking in. Testa's rise to fame can obviously be attributed to the fact that he's the son of a boss in the past, but also that he married up. He was engaged to Chucky Merlino's daughter. Remember, Chucky Merlino is Scarfo's underboss. And we all know that when there's a wedding on the horizon, said lovesick man is catapulted into stardom by the mafia. Especially when it's like a really, really, really important dude whose daughter you're marrying, like, uh, say, the underboss? Testa, though, like his father, wasn't that bright. He backed out of the wedding to Merlino's daughter. Now, the story goes that Merlino convinced Scarfo to kill Testa for breaking up with his daughter. According to Philly and Nettie, though, that is not true. Testa says that he actually went to Scarfo before breaking up with her, and Scarfo was like, uh, yeah, dude, it's way better to do it now than, like, after you guys already get married. Duh. Leave her. Now, when Testa breaks up with Merlino's daughter, Scarfo gets to use, like, oh my god. Testa left Merlino's daughter. Look at the disrespect to my underboss. As an excuse, but, like, meanwhile, he gave him permission to do it. He was like, yeah, do it, do it, do it, do it. But, like, he was doing it so that he could, like, you know, kill him. Now, Scarfo's all, like, you know, twitchy and paranoid. He's super pissed about this newspaper article. So even though Scarfo was Testa's father's protege, and even though Salvatore Testa was his protege, by all appearances... Scarfo and Testa are like besties. He can't just go whack him for no reason. But Testa leaving his underboss's daughter is the perfect excuse, and he sends out a hit team to find and kill Testa. People in the family said that when Scarfo and Testa would be like at the same party or in the same place, like they're at opposite sides of the room, they just pretend that one another's not there, you know. They're, they got their little cliques, and it's like, you know, a mean girl's high school party. And it's just, it's, it's obvious they ain't boys no more. Nope, they are not friends. The crew started pursuing Testa, but they kept failing. They made 17 attempts on Testa's life. 17! Can you imagine trying to kill somebody 17 times? Can you imagine having somebody try to kill you 17 times? It's just lunacy. It's crazy. I'm assuming Testa knew he was in trouble and people were out to get him, so he went into hiding, and but Jesus, like, <laughs> 17 times is a gigantic number of times. It's crazy. It's a lot of times. So they keep trying to kill this dude, and they keep not having luck killing this dude. So they get his best friend to set up a meeting with him, and this is like his most trusted guy. He's like, all right, cool. This is my best friend my entire life. He would never try to hurt me. And when Testa shows up to meet him, he gets two in the back of the head. So the crew that killed Testa, they tried to get rid of the body. So they dump his body in a ditch, and they're like, oh yeah, we totally brought it back far enough. Like, this is great. We were successful. But somehow, I don't know, his foot was sticking up or something. They found the body really fast. Nick Caramondi was one of the dudes on the hit team, and the whole hit team went out for drinks the night after they got Testa. Which, like, on one hand, it's like, oh my god, you killed somebody, and then you went and had drinks to celebrate it. But on the other hand, it's like, you tried this 17 times. Like, I think by the 18th time, it'd be like, all right, dope. Like, we finally got this done. Thank God. Because 17 times is so many times. 
At this point, Scarfo is just living the friggin' life. He's in Florida buying mansions and yachts. He's, like, partying with the best booths, babes, and boats out there. He has a mistress that he's spending a lot of time with. He has a gaggle of boys with him at all times. He's, like, buying shots for the club. You know, he's celebrity status. He's, he's a big, huge deal. And, like, if you look in from the outside, it's like, wow, like, this guy really has the entire world at his feet. But at the same time, Scarfo's becoming more and more paranoid by the day. Like, this man's coming apart at the friggin' seams. The next best friend turned enemy to get on to Scarfo's radar was Merlino himself. Scarfo became convinced that it was Merlino this time that was going to try to make a play for his position and he didn't respect him as boss and where he doesn't like me. He doesn't respect me. He has to die. But surprisingly this time around, he doesn't kill Merlino. So what he does is he waits. He makes the smart decision now because everybody in the family is mad that Testa was killed. Everyone, I mean, he had one little crew that was going out and trying to kill Testa, but to the rest of the family, they don't know. All of a sudden, Testa is dead. And Testa is the ex-boss's son. He is close with everybody on the family. He grew up on the Philly streets. Like, this is somebody that was their friend. So now they're pissed. They're like, yo, this this dude was like so loyal to Scarfo. He never spoke a bad word about him. He was always by his side. He didn't deserve that. And now they're mad. They're really, really, really mad. So Scarfo can't go and just kill Merlino because he keeps hearing everybody talking about the fact that he killed Testa. So what he does is he waits until like one or two more missed meetings happen because it just so happens that Merlino is a fall-down alcoholic, so he knows it's going to happen. It keeps happening, and that's why he's convinced that this man doesn't respect him. He does not respect my authority. So he just waits, and it happens one or two more times, and what he does is he demotes him. He demotes Merlino to a soldier. Not a capo, not a lieutenant. A freaking soldier. That's like being in the military and being knocked down from like an E9 to like an E4. Anybody with any kind of military experience, you know exactly what this means. It's a wild demotion. But I'm also sure that Merlino also recognizes how lucky he was to walk away from this with his life. Scarpo had suspicions about him and he didn't die. So I, I, I'm i sure he was upset about his demotion. But at the same time, I'm, I'm definitely sure that he was like, yo, like, I'm alive right now. Like, I just had a beef with Scarpo and I didn't die. Like, that, <laughs> that's a feat in itself. He, he needs a pat on the back right there. While he didn't have him killed, he did have Karamandi watching every single move he made. He was watching over him like a hawk. And he was instructed that pretty much like if he looks at you wrong, put a bullet between his eyes. That's the way that he was operating because he wanted to kill him. He just couldn't. So he was just waiting for an excuse and he knew it would come eventually, but he, he had to be able to say like, well, look at what he did. He got arrested. He did this. He did that. But it just so happens that it didn't happen because he got arrested. Merlino was convicted of trying to bribe a police officer and he was locked up. So he was kind of out of Scarpo's grasps and he didn't rat. So, you know, he's in prison. He's paying the price for the crime of not respecting Scarpo, but he's not ratting. He's sitting in prison because if he rat, he would be out of prison. So Scarpo's like, whatever, you know, he's, he's out of my goddamn face. Now, while all of this is going on, the feds are searching for, like, any reason that they can get to put these guys in jail. There's this big project that's getting pitched by Willard Roos III, who's a developer. It's called Penn's Landing, and this is a multi-billion dollar proposal that's pretty much renovating the entire strip of the coast of Pennsylvania. And Scarfo gets word that Roos is going to have to get approval from the city commission to make this happen. Scarfo sends Caramondi to make contact with Roos's people and let them know that for a hefty fee, like a million dollars to start, he can make sure that the project is approved in the city council, which... I'm surprised that he's still touting that after Matthews is in jail. I I guess maybe he had someone on the inside still. I'm not really sure. But he sends Caramondi like, hey, this is a really good opportunity. Go tell that dude I'll do it for him for a lot of money. So Caramondi goes to Roos's employee and tells Roos's employee like, hey, get with your boss. Let him know that for a cool little mill, I'll make this happen for you. And immediately Roos is like, oh, hell no. Like, hell no. No. And 
flips it around and runs as fast as he can to the FBI. The FBI have the employee identify Karamandi, and once there's a positive identification, the FBI plants one of their own guys as an employee of Ruse's that the mafia is supposed to contact about all future business between the mafia and Ruse. Karamandi was brought up on extortion charges, and just like the typical American-born mafia associate, especially one that like didn't grow up in the life and was just some like petty car thief in Atlantic City, the second he's at risk, he flips. Karamandi reached out to the feds and let them know that he would cooperate with them to get himself out of a really long prison sentence. In 1987, Scarfo was arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit extortion. With Karamandi testifying against him, there's like no way out of this and he got found guilty. There was there was no other way. It was so damning with Karamandi going against him because Karamandi was his dude. Like he was the one that did everything. He was the one that killed Testa. He was the one that went and proposed this to Roos. Karamandi was like number one to him. So with him telling everything, it was just, he was done. He, he was guilty. From these charges, Scarfo got 14 years in prison. A year later, the feds brought charges for nine murders up against him. They wanted him locked up for good. They wanted no chance that this man would walk out of prison 14 years later at 73 years old. Like, none. These new charges included the murder of Judge Edwin Halfont, Salvatore Testa, and the attempted murder of hunchback Harry Riccobini. He was found guilty of all nine murders, and a 55-year sentence was added on to the 14-year sentence that he was already serving, giving him the chance to walk out a free man at the age of 129 years old. They had successfully locked him up for the rest of his life. Again, if the feds want to put you in jail for the rest of your life, they will. After Scarfo was locked up, people in the family were literally lining up down the block to testify. None of them wanted to do jail time, and with Scarfo being found guilty of all this stuff, they were all implicated as well. One of the biggest turncoats was Phil Leonetti, Scarfo's nephew. Another was Lawrence Merlino. Lawrence Merlino was Scarfo's underboss, Chucky Merlino's brother. Both of those men testified and helped put away John Gotti, who was the boss of the Gambino family in the 90s. Most sources say that Scarfo took down the Philadelphia crime family, crumbling a successful empire that Bruno had built into rubble in a very short amount of time. Nicodemo, little Nicky Scarfo, died at a federal medical center in North Carolina on January 15th, 2017. He was 87 years old. His legacy isn't the best. I'm not gonna lie to you. It's not a great legacy. He's known as a tyrannical overlord mafia boss who destroyed the Philadelphia mafia with his bloodthirsty, ruthless reign. To this day, though, the Scarfos are well-known in Philadelphia, and their family, along with their connection to the Mafia, lives on. And to this day, they're still able to park their cars in the middle of the street in Philadelphia. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. I hope that you like and subscribe, check out all of my other videos, and stick around because I put videos out once a week. I do it on Mafia Mondays sometimes. I don't really get it out every Monday, but I do my best and I'm going to keep trying to get them out every Monday. So stick around. And if you have any suggestions on who I should cover next, either message me on Facebook or Instagram, or just drop it as a comment here. I hope I see you next time. And I hope you guys have a wonderful week and I'll see you later. Bye.